The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. There are two ways to get better at writing. One is to practice writing so that your first drafts are better. This takes a lot of work and it is well worth the investment. But the second way is to learn how to edit your first draft into a better second draft. Both of these techniques are important for authors who are improving in their craft. Now, it's common for beginning authors to feel like the second draft is just the first draft, but different. It's not better. It's just different. And this doesn't need to be the case. You can learn how to become a better self-editor. You can learn how to turn that first draft, which maybe is not so good, into a much better second draft. It won't keep you from needing an editor, but it will improve the quality of your writing. In fact, that is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. We have a very special guest on the show, and you're going to learn how to proofread your own manuscript. Our guest is the general editor, or a general editor at Iron Stream Media. She's also the director of PenCon, the annual conference for Christian editors and proofreaders. So she's at the top of the pyramid when it comes to editing. Denise Locke, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Well, thank you, Thomas, for inviting me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, uh, a lot of people throw out the word editing, and they think that there's only one kind of editing, and they just need to get an editor, and then their book is done. So can you walk us through the different kinds of editing? Well, when you first spoke today, you talked about proofreading, and that's probably the end of the road when it comes to editing. In that case, you're just looking for punctuation, spelling, a few typos. But you can need an editor for any kind of editing all the way down. You may have to start with a developmental edit where you're not, you just have an idea and you're not sure if that's a book idea, an article idea. So you need a developmental editor to help you develop the content. Yeah, what I like about developmental editors is they help you hone your ideas. If it's mm-hmm. nonfiction, help you be more persuasive. So it's not a matter of like making good paragraphs. It's more a matter of structuring good chapters and you know, putting together compelling ideas. Or if you write fiction, uh, putting together good characters, right? If, if one of your characters is broken or they're not likable in a good way, that's something that a developmental editor will help you with. So it's a very much a big picture Edit. I like to think of uh, developmental editors as the Air Force. They're there to blow up the big things. They're not the boots on the ground taking the trenches face to face with the typos. Right. And the developmental editor will help you with your story arc. If you're a fiction editor, they will also help you in nonfiction know what to leave out of the book. Uh, sometimes nonfiction writers can get carried away. And so a developmental editor can help you with that. Then you kind of move to a content editor uh, who's looking, again, a second look at all that um, chapters, what's in a chapter, what should be, what shouldn't be, uh, story arc, characters, again. And then you have a copy editor that's really getting down to the sentences and the paragraphs. And then finally, a proofreader who, who just going along with the polishing cloth. Yeah. Uh, One of the big differences, you can tell which kind of edit you're getting, is the tool that they're using. So developmental editors typically 
uh, using Microsoft Word to insert comments, and it's just commenting on various parts of the book. Whereas a copy editor is using track changes to add that comma so you can see exactly where the comma was added. And then between the copy edit and the proofread, it stops existing. Your book stops existing as a Word document and starts existing as a PDF. And the proofreader typically gives you a punch list, which is just a list of changes. The third paragraph on on page two needs a comma after the word but. And that is very tedious to insert a punch list changes. And so you want to have as good of a copy edit as possible uh, because proofreading, uh, ideally, you're not catching much because of what a hassle it is because you're actually having to edit the PDF itself or the typeset uh, document itself. Yes. And the more you take care of in the early stages, the less the proofreader will have to do. And that's the goal. Don't give your proofreader a job, basically. <laughs> Put the proofreaders out of work. Uh, although I don't think it'll ever no, fully happen. No, that will never the typos, happen. There's a curse and the weeds always work their way in. So let's let's just go through these different forms of editing and talk about how the author can do that for themselves, right? Because an author can do their own developmental editor, developmental edit. They can look at their own copy edit, and of course, they always do their own proofread. Um, they're not going to catch any everything, but they always want to look. So let's start with the developmental edit. How can an author do a better job looking at that first draft and kind of restructuring the plot or the ideas? Well, the first thing is to look at your word count. I mean, if you've written a book and you have uh, gone with the wind 400,000 words, well, then you have a huge problem on your hands. Um, it, most books are much shorter than that. In fact, the Steve Lobby Agency blog has a wonderful uh, post on what your word count could be, should be for all the various things. Uh, another thing in the developmental edit that you want to do is you want to look at your chapters and say, what is my main point in this chapter? What am, what do I want the reader to walk away with in this chapter? And then what do I want the reader to walk away with in the next chapter? And if you can't pinpoint that, again, that's an issue. I highly recommend anyone who's writing nonfiction, I highly recommend that you read Writing Successful Self-Help and How-To Books by Jean Marie Stein. And you're saying, well, you may be saying, well, I don't write self-help or how-to books. Yes, you do. If you're writing nonfiction, you are basically doing that because the goal is to help the reader do something or to work through a problem and uh, she does a great job of taking you through that idea of how do I organize my chapters? Um, how do I make sure I am answering what the reader wants to know in each chapter? And also making sure that you stick with the goal. If you can't phrase your goal in one sentence, that's also a huge red flag. Another really excellent book that I recommend, it's a perfect companion to the one you just recommended, is Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath. It's all of the science behind what makes ideas sticky. Mm. And it's for nonfiction, uh, primarily. There's a little bit in there that will help for fiction, but it helps you understand how to craft ideas that really stay with you uh, so that the mind can grasp it, how to make them easy to understand, how to get them to not be, how how you not get them out of your head. And uh, 
I use this book, uh, Coaching Speech and Debate Students, back uh, when I was a high school speech and debate coach. And uh, using this book, we took half of our club to the national championship because uh, at the time, no one else had used this book, and we had just an incredible edge <laughs> over all of the other clubs. Then they all bought the book for 10 bucks, and we lost our edge the next year. But it, it's a really excellent book, uh, <laughs> useful, for, <laughs> useful for podcasting, useful for sermons, and useful for putting together nonfiction books. And it helps you understand what a good structure is because often we just kind of lay it all out and it's just kind of a brain dump of all of our ideas and then working those ideas into uh, compelling narratives and compelling points really is the work of writing and in nonfiction that's that first edit is really important yes and a lot of times i run into clients who were who are pastors or who are speakers and that's another thing that has to be done in that developmental edit is to adjust your platform style to keyboard style and, and eliminate a lot of repetition, eliminate a lot of rabbit trails, and get the ideas down um, focused. Learn how to add headings and subheadings. Um, the art of speaking and the art of writing are very different. And it's very much like um, sculpture in many ways. The developmental edit is about kind of chiseling away mm -hmm. everything that's not the statue that you want. And if you're taking, you know, some pastors will start off with the sermon series as the beginning. And, you know, it's kind of like inside every fat man is a, a skinny man screaming to be set free. Well, inside the transcript of every sermon series <laughs> is a skinny book, you know, screaming to be set free. And you have to really chisel and, and cut brutally. And the reason why we do this step first is that it doesn't make sense to take all the typos out of a paragraph that you're going to just cut from the book or shorten to just a sentence. And this is hard to do because our babies are there, our precious turns of phrase, especially if you're a public speaker, right? So I'm a speaker who writes, and there are techniques like repetition that work really well in public speaking that don't work well on the printed page. And it's really hard to take that out. And so here's a trick that I use. Instead of deleting it, I have a second companion doc to my book that's the someday maybe doc and i don't delete those things i just cut them and paste them into the doc that way they're still there if i want to bring them back i can it's so, so it's not as much of a rejection uh but what i find is that you know in the cool light of the morning the next day i'm like oh that sentence really wasn't so good or that paragraph really wasn't needed but it's a little less traumatic if you're not deleting them so th that's one quick trip one quick tip that you can use when doing that developmental edit because i would say this is probably the most painful of the edits uh, especially for novelists right when you hear that your story doesn't work or the second act is dragging you really have to go and do some hard work or people don't or maybe the theology in chapter three is wrong right the editor brings in like have you considered this passage from the scriptures and you look at it and you're like oh my goodness my theology is wrong right that's a painful edit it's a lot harder than putting the commas in all the right places for the copy edit it's mostly just thank you for doing my work for me but this developmental edit's emotionally difficult what what tips do you have for authors who are navigating that kind of emotional trial of the developmental edit well your suggestion is very good about having that delete keep fight file another another tip is keep the file the the gargantuan file and then just create a new version. Date that one, create a new version, cut, 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 cut as much as you can. Uh, that way you always have that other version that you love on nearby. And if you want to go back to some paragraphs there, you can do that. The other uh, tip I would have for that is 
if in doubt, cut it out. I know some of the listener, some of your listeners have probably heard that, but that is so true. You can probably cut it out. You may love that story, but if it isn't crucial to either the character's um, motivation or obstacle in a novel, you need to cut it out. If it's a story or an illustration in a nonfiction book, and it doesn't contribute something significant to the reader's understanding, you're going to have to cut that baby out. And uh, like you said, put it in another file, leave it in the other version, and come back and stroke it when you need to, hug it, whatever. Uh, (laughs) but, But leave it out of the final version. Another mistake a lot of authors make is with their first book is that they feel like their first book has to have all of their ideas. Uh, it's got to have every single character they've ever come up with for their novel. It's got to have all of the conflicts. It's man against man, man against himself, man against society, and man against God, and there's a tsunami, right? It's like everything is in conflict, and it's very overwhelming. Uh, and what I encourage authors who are doing that. It's like, remember, you have a whole career in front of you, and often... Uh, I recommend for most authors that they don't publish their first book. Your first book is for therapy. It's for God doing a work in your life that may be why he called you to write it because he's wanting you to work through some issues or some trauma. That doesn't mean that you need to publish it. And it may be that this, if you are to sow this uh, first book back into the soil, it will fertilize a whole field of books (laughs) that are more focused and better written as a result of that first book that you wrote. And it really does help to have that greater degree of focus because really the only way to learn how to write a book is to write a book. But that first book isn't a good book. It just taught you how to write a book. <laughs> so, and, and realize that you have a lot of time in front of you. A lot of people get in a rush, especially as they get older. Like, no, the, the slowest path is the path with all the shortcuts. Yes, and, and as you said, even writers like John Grisham and uh, Stephen King have admitted that those first novels were never published. Yeah. So, you know, we we have to get over the idea that my first novel, my first nonfiction book is a bestseller. And setting it aside is often the fastest way forward because a lot of authors, they take some 10 years to give up on that first novel or that first nonfiction book. If they had just put it aside and started writing a second book, they'd have found it was a lot easier writing the second book is so much easier than writing the first book because you've done it before. You know how it works. So we talked about the developmental edit, edit, the most emotionally taxing, but also in some ways the easiest because it's the less technically sophisticated, right? Um, you do need to understand good persuasion. You need to understand good story structure to do a developmental edit. But then we come to the copy edit. And I will say of the edits, this is the one I personally find the hardest. Anyone who's read any of my blog posts uh, can attest to this. <laughs> I'm a terrible self-editor uh, when it comes to copy editing. So Denise, help. What? <laughs> how can I be better at finding my own typos? Well, there are. The easiest way is to read aloud. You will be amazed at how much you catch when you try to read something aloud. So if you're not in the habit of reading aloud what you write, or if you're a whether you're fiction or nonfiction, if you're telling a story or an illustration, you can even act it out and and see you know what you may have left out, something you may have repeated. So always, always read aloud. Um, the other thing that I would suggest just off the bat is to look at paragraphs first what sentence can i cut out of that 
paragraph, again painful, and then you look at the sentence itself and see what can I cut out. And, and there are some tips for that. If the sentence begins with it or there, immediately you know there are words that can be cut out. If there's a lot of be verbs, you know you can choose an active verb in, instead. Here's a, here's a trick on the be verbs that I did okay. uh, for my most recent book. I turned on track changes, and then I did a find and replace for every be verb. So I t- replaced every is with is, and every was with was, and so on, all the way through the be verbs. And so it made no changes to my document other than inserting all of these track changes. And then it forced me to go through and justify every be verb <laughs> because sometimes you do want to use a be verb, but That's often right. there's a better verb that you can use and it. It makes the editing a lot more punchy and it's a really easy technique um, to do for yourself to help you see, Oh my gosh, this paragraph's got 15 be verbs. I think I can cut some of these and I can uh, replace others uh, with more interesting active verbs. And the same thing would work for favorite words you come across. A lot of others, authors don't realize how often they use thing or um, another pet word. We, we just listened to a John Grisham novel, and I can't tell you how many times he used however. And we were like, after a while, you just begin to hear it again and again. You notice it more with audiobooks, I will say. Yeah, Those catchphrases, <laughs> when you're reading the book, you may not notice it. Right. Just like you were talking about reading the book yourself. Well, now in the days of audiobooks, where more of your readers are encountering your book via audiobook, it's even more important to catch those off-repeated words, because when the narrator says it for the 500th time, people really hear it, and then they can't not hear it. That's right. They, they really pay attention. Another thing is, when you're getting down to that, look at how many adjectives you string in a row. A lot of people get the idea that they have to have three adjectives or to, to describe one thing. But as um, Mark Twain even told us, Adjectives weaken when they're together and strengthen when they're apart. So, you know, that's something that you can that you can look for. How many describing words do you have? Uh, space that out. You, you usually I think even in on um, on writing by Stephen King, he talks about the fact that you only need one or two characteristics of a character that really stand out um, and and. Th- and then throw different characteristics in as you go along. An indication that you're using the right word, or the sorry, the wrong word, is when you have to use a bunch of other words to modify exactly. it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, for instance, you know, the classic example is he walked quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Well, walked is the wrong word, and so now you have to modify it with quickly, uh, which now is less interesting than saying he ran or he he darted or right, like, all the different words we have for that. But it's that case throughout. And so adverbs, uh, as Stephen King's famous for saying, the road to hell is paved with adverbs. And uh, adverbs are bad, generally speaking, but they're not bad in the way that you think. They're not bad because they're bad in of themselves. They're bad in that they are attracted to bad writing. It's kind of like um, in the olden times, we believed that rotten meat was caused by flies. Right. So flies would come and land on fresh meat and they would make the meat rotten. And it turns out that, no, it's actually the opposite, that as meat rots, it attracts more and more flies. The flies don't cause the rotten meat. The rotten meat causes the flies. And adverbs don't cause bad writing. Bad writing causes adverbs. So if you see a lot of adverbs in a sentence, it's an indication that that sentence is not well written. Right. You need a stronger verb. You need a stronger adjective. You need a stronger action in that sentence. And 
I'm glad you brought up that adverbs aren't evil in and of themselves because we actually do need adverbs. We need them to express time, proximity, uh, preferences, and uh, things like that. So adverbs aren't bad, as in everything, moderation. If the sentence is 10 words with an adverb and it's 15 words without the adverb because you're having to use a bunch of words to get around the adverb, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> use the adverb. And if you look at Stephen King's book, he puts he he shares an example of him editing uh, the first chapter of one of his books. And he points out some adverbs that he has in his book and he keeps them in his book. He doesn't cut them out because they are better. And so the, you need to understand that there's... Um, just like in the physical laws, in the grammar laws, there's a hierarchy, right? So we have this law of gravity, and it's true that the law of gravity exists, but there are forces that are more powerful than gravity, and you can create lift if you're generating enough uh, energy and momentum. And so birds are able to fly, and airplanes are able to fly. It doesn't violate the law of gravity. It's just that there's a higher, more powerful law at play. And the same is true for reading and um, and for editing. And I w- I'm curious what you think the highest law in editing is uh, so i'm going to share what i think it is and then you share what you think it is and we can discuss i would say it's probably clarity and understanding uh, that you want the idea in your head to be reproduced in the head of the reader uh, with as little distortion or loss as possible and you edit everything else that distracts what what do you think is the highest law absolutely clarity and as far uh, there's a second one for editors and that is do no harm in other words, your author's book is still your author's book. <laughs> and and as an editor, you don't want to do that. But uh, for self-editing, yes, clarity, conciseness, those are the pillars of, of strong writing. That's right, because you want to preserve voice. That's the challenge of being an editor for somebody else's writing is you don't want to turn them into some sanitized robot. Right. Because that's actually less clear and less interesting. <laughs> um, and yet sometimes, which again, it goes to like when to break the rules and, and what rules to have. Uh, when I was doing my book, I created a special style guide for my editors. I'm like, these are the five rules I'm breaking, and I'm breaking them all the way through the book. These words are going to be capitalized. They're not normally capitalized, but I'm treating them as if they are characters in a story. And so I don't want you to go and change it 500 times to take out the capitals where I just have to reject your your changes. And so there are times when rules uh, are broken and style sheets are created on a book specific basis. And actually, that's a great point, Thomas, because if you are an author working with an editor before that editor starts to work on the book, you should give them some guidelines like you just said. Uh, these, these are the rules I'm breaking and this is why I'm breaking. And there may be some back and forth about that, but most editors will cooperate with you on things that are intrinsic to, to your book and to your voice. And if you're writing fantasy, please, for the love of your editor and consistency, (laughs) give them a spelling guide for all of your fun place names and for all of your fun character names. (laughs) Because uh, you may have changed the spelling of one of your characters halfway through the book and didn't realize it. And you need to give your editor the authoritative spelling. Because if they can't look up the correct spelling in a dictionary, you have to provide uh, the dictionary. And so this is another example of a specific style guide. But we're getting a little bit away from right, self-editing right. Yes, here. we are. So let's talk about some other things that people t- can look for as they're uh, looking through their uh, book. And one thing that I, I notice often that I try to fix in my own writing is complicated sentences. Yes. And I remember uh, I audited a journalism class. 
and in that journalism class, and the vi- right when we were done with the syllabus, my professor got up and started talking about right-branching sentences. And she says, this is the heart of good journalism. You can write an entire news article with nothing but right-branching sentences. And I'm like, what on earth is a right-branching sentence? <laughs> because I didn't do sentence diagramming in school. I had no idea what a left-branching sentence and a right-branching sentence is. So a right-branching sentence, stick with me. I know this. we're going to get technical. It's totally worth learning this because it transforms it can transform your writing subject verb object and then you add all your modifiers and all your stuff after that so john hit the ball john is the subject hit is the verb the ball is the object and people do not get tired of that structure there are times occasionally for suspense or intrigue to do a left branching sentence in a hole in a ground there lived a favorite hobbit (laughs) right (laughs) but the problem is if every sentence is structured that way people get really irritated really quickly and it makes it much harder to read i didn't appreciate just how important right branching sentences were until i started reading to my daughter she can stick she's two years old she can stick with a story for 10, 20, maybe even 30 minutes if it has right-branching sentences. But if there is more than two left-branching sentences in a row, she straightens and slides right off the lap. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, she can't handle, as a two-year-old, left-branching sentences, and many readers can't either. And so um, how do you spot that? Right? Because most people don't even know what that is. What, what, what are giveaways other than just a really long sentence? Well, you want to... Again, this is grammar, but you want to focus on the doer of the sentence. Who Who's in charge of the action in that sentence? Uh, obviously, we call that a subject in, in grammar, but who's in charge of the sentence? And the power positions in your sentence are the first couple words and the last couple words and then your verb. So you want to be able to keep those in that order, subject, verb, object, like you mentioned, as often as possible. If you have a lot of explanations before you get to the doer of the sentence, then that's a sign. Um, if if you lose your breath before you get to the end of the <laughs> sentence when you're reading it aloud, that's a sign. Um, I, I sometimes in the writers group I attend, I some I, I'll read a sentence and. I can barely get to the end of the sentence before I'm gasping for breath. Well, I love that test. I want to <laughs> underline that. I'm going to enhance it just a little bit. If you have a treadmill at home, get on your treadmill, That's walk right. in your treadmill and read your book That's, out loud and then highlight go. any sentence that you get out of breath, then fix that sentence. Because uh, passive voice and left branching sentences, I'll say, often go together. Yes. Uh, and passive voice, most people, most of you listening know passive voice is, is bad, but that's an overly simplistic um, rule because there are times when passive voice is very useful for obscuring the truth, right? So you, this, the famous sentence, mistakes were made, right? Mm-hmm. We're not saying who made the mistakes. <laughs> we're saying mistakes were made. And sometimes for tension or for, you know, the payoff later on in the story, you then reveal, so you tease it early with a passive sentence, then you reveal it later with an active sentence. So it's not that you never want to have a passive sentence, but you want to do it on purpose and not because it's just the easiest way to structure a sentence. And we can be sure that J.R.R. Tolkien did the first sentence of The Hobbit on purpose when he wrote In a Hole in the Ground, There Lived a Hobbit, because he wanted that suspense. He was creating that. Here's what you know about this world. Ah, here's what you don't. 
That's right. And and it's a perfect use of it because it's subverting your expectation, right? Because right. what normally lives in holes in the ground, foxes or mice or rabbits or snakes. And so suddenly he's like, this is a different kind of story. And so now you're like, what's a hobbit? And now he's got you and he's yes. not going to let you go for another three novels <laughs> or four well, four, novels. Well, four, yeah. Yeah, and the or more if you read Children That's of right. Hurin and the Cimmerillion. Don't don't get me started. I, I know, I never Thomas. I can tell I can this find. is not a good rabbit trail for us. <laughs> so, um, part of the reason I think that uh, right branching sentences are so important is that, and why it's so hard to write them is that English is originally an Anglo-Saxon language, and then it was conquered by uh, French speakers, which at the time was a derivative of Latin. So Latin can have uh, many different sentence structures, but the common one that they use is a left-branching structure where they tell you the word hobbit or the kind of the key to unlock the sentence at the end for dramatic tension. And to this day, there's this feeling that that's like the elevated way to speak, the more sophisticated way to speak, because obviously the Latins are more uh, sophisticated than the dirty, uh, uneducated Anglo-Saxons. And I just want to say that is some thousand-year-old racism that needs to die. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, our language wasn't didn't actually turn into French. We stole some words and we went back to being English with some changes. And what resonates more with readers is that right-branching Anglo-Saxon way to write. Yes, absolutely. Get that subject there. Yes. <laughs> so what are some other things to look for? When, uh, if, when somebody's re- reading their sentences, uh, what, uh, what else should they look for? You don't... Again, I'm I'm bordering on grammar here, but you don't want to have too much description in a sentence. You don't want to go on for five prepositional phrases describing uh, the size of something or the location of something. Don't give too much information. Keep to the action. There are some very simple things that you want to do. Uh, you want to check your paragraph length. I mean, we talked about sentence length a little bit. The average sentence should be about 14 words, some longer, some shorter. But you do want to vary that sentence length, and you also want to check your paragraph length. These days, people, because they do so much reading online, they like shorter and shorter paragraphs. So check that. Check to make sure that you have made one point in a paragraph and then go on. And that happens a lot more in nonfiction because the the author tries to do more than one thing, but one thing that I had to do when I was writing and and when I was teaching writing was, and this is tedious, go through every paragraph. Can you reduce it to one sentence? If you can, that shows that you've got focus. If you can't, it shows you don't. And then in fiction, what you want to do is make sure that every paragraph is moving the action forward. And if that paragraph is not moving the action forward or developing character, eh, it's probably one you have to put in your file for later. Back before Twitter became a cesspool of negativity and anger, it was a really great tool for learning how to cut unnecessary words. Also, because the 140 character limit really did force you to write really punchy focused sentences and i found it to be incredibly helpful for my writing helping me realize just how many unnecessary words i had in my in my writing and it's really unfortunate for writers everywhere that they increased the word count on twitter because now uh it's less of a 
writing exercise and, and writing training because it really does help you realize like you're writing writing and then boom you hit that limit you're like oh my goodness i still have more to say i've got to go find some words to cut and what i've written already to put in room for what i still want to say uh, but you can still use twitter and you can still send tweets and use it as an exercise to help you uh, clean up your writing and you can still restrict yourself to 144 characters <laughs> you know you don't you don't you don't have to expand uh, and that. you can be nice on Twitter. I'm just going to say can. it, it is can. possible. It, it is possible. <laughs> not not common, but possible. You'll be remarkable if you're not you know, criticizing your political enemies on Twitter. You're just gen- being genuinely helpful and nice. People are going to be like, "What are you doing here? Who are you?" And uh, who knows? Maybe that's an effective um, strategy. So uh, let's say I've got four or five mistakes that I keep making. Right. I, I hired an editor to edit just the first chapter to see where I'm at. And they, they say I'm doing the same four or five things over and over again. What tips do you have for helping me uh, overcome those same mistakes? Well, if it's if it's a uh, comma mistake, like you refuse to use that comma for the and, then I would say highlight all your ands with track changes, find and search, and then do that. If it's a... a a particular phrase, um, then you would have to highlight that phrase. If you if you keep starting sentences with it, if you keep starting sentences with there, if you keep using adverbs, you're you're really you're going to have to do the find and replace, and it's tedious to do that. Um, what I like to do with my clients is I like to give them that Chicago Manual style guideline rule that says this is why you need this comma. And and then just allow them to find that pattern in their book again and again. Or um, I'm trying to think of another example that people often mistake. Using one thing that I find very often in nonfiction books is that people like to use long quotations from other books. And that is something that they need to eliminate. And it usually doesn't contribute. So that would be a mistake. You don't need to quote someone else for every point you make. And I will say, if you're starting, going back to the developmental edit, if you are starting a chapter with a definition, you need to start over. (laughs) You don't see that in any of the great works of literature, none of the persuasive works. If you have to start with definitions, uh, that may be good for a legal brief but it is not good for a chapter. And if you're quoting a dictionary, you need to read Made to Stick and learn how to be persuasive. There we uh, go, Made to Stick. It's just really boring, and it doesn't um, connect, and people don't remember it. It just becomes noise. The same with opening a speech with definitions. Oh, it's not not a good technique. Um, So it sounds like find and replace is really like the go-to tool for self-editing, right? Because you, you find and replace, you turn on track changes, and then you find and replace, like you're saying, adverbs. So you just replace every L-Y with L-Y. With, and now they all have little track changes in a flag, and then you go and look if every L-Y word needs to be there. And sure, there'll be false positives, so you just click dismiss, and you're able to go through. Um, in terms of other tools, what do you think of uh, self-editing tools like Grammarly or ProWritingAid? Grammarly, it it helps. Pro Writing Aid helps perfect it. Some people use perfect it. All of those are helpful, but there are certain nuances that they don't find. Uh, I I myself have used perfect it, 
And I find that it fi- it locates a lot of things, but it doesn't locate everything. The same thing with your spell check on your Microsoft Word. I mean, at the very least, turn on your spell check <laughs> on your track on your Microsoft Word and use that. Um, I would just say that. And now I lost my train of thought, Thomas. Remind me what the question was. So we're, we're talking about Grammarly, and I'll, I'll just oh, yes. jump in and show yeah. some of my thoughts while you're getting your trains back. Um, what I Grammarly is a bad tool if you're trying to use it to replace a human editor. And right. I think that that's where a lot of editors, they're like, you know, you're not going to end up with a truly edited document with this artificial intelligence trying to replace me because I can't be replaced. And I think that's totally fair and totally true. And while I haven't used Pro Writing Aid and Perfect It, what I do like about Grammarly, and I've said this on the show before, is that I really like how it explains the rule. And so it'll, especially with the green underlines, it'll underline a sentence with green. It will show you the rule, I think from the Chicago manual style, and then explain why the rule exists, which is really educational. Uh, If you say snoozed during grammar class in school, (laughs) I definitely would not have gotten an A in your class (laughs) back in the day. I know you were an English teacher. Um, So, but now that I'm like, I'm writing and I want to know these rules, Grammarly kind of spoon feeds them in a very specific and targeted way. And I think it's really good at that, at that educational piece, but it's not a replacement for hiring a real editor. And and now I have my train of thought back and let me, I'll just say this, an an editor will pick up on nuances that a computer program can't. It'll pick up on sensitivity issues or diversity issues that that you may, uh, uh, the editor will pick up on sensitivity or diversity issues that you may need to address and say, are you, and they may say, an editor will say, is this what you meant here? I'm I'm not sure that that's what you wanted to say. Or theological issues, right? If you're writing a Christian book. Yes, theological issues. I And, and every now and then I'll run across a book where they talk about um, Joseph being the youngest son of Jacob. And I'm like, I think Benjamin was the youngest son there. You know, so just those little nuances, whether it's biblical knowledge or a, a common fact, or even just the idea of, I'm not sure this is the tone you want here. That's what an editor does for you. And the, the editor is acting as your first reader, in a sense, and trying to make sure that, you've co- that you're aware of every meaning that a sentence could have. I love, I love that way of looking at it, because while the computer looks at it from an algorithmic perspective it doesn't pick up uh, on that nuance and that nuance is where the real heart and where the art is and a good editor helps bring that nuance out helps your voice be more clear not less clear and helps you have a more consistent voice and and really works with you to become a better writer the ai tools do that too right understanding the rule is good but what the ai tool won't help you do is understand when to break the rule Right, and an editor will be like, "Oh, I see what you're doing here," or maybe consider breaking this rule here. I know in general you don't want to use an adverb, but the sentence is 15 words. We could get it down to eight with one adverb. I think that this might be a time uh, to use an adverb. Right, and those programs will always mark your passive sentences, and sometimes, as we've said, you want that passive sentence, and that it will always 
some Christian writer, although many publishing houses don't want you to use a lot of capital letters for deity pronouns, uh, for using one, for you know, using a capital R, if you're using Redeemer for <laughs> Jesus or the living water, that sort of thing. The AI programs, of course, will flag all that and your human editor will know, oh, that that's what's intended. And even when it's father and father, you know, sometimes you want, ca- you know, you want father right. capitalized. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you want son capitalized. Sometimes you don't. So. Because really with a Christian book, you, you almost always have a special style guide mm-hmm. for how you handle these biblical concepts. And uh, what, what's the rule of thumb there that you kind of follow the style guide of the Bible translation that you're using? So if you're using King James, you probably would capitalize deity names, whereas if you're using NIV, you probably wouldn't. Uh, is that kind of the guidelines or is it on a book-by-book basis? Actually, the King James doesn't capitalize the pronouns, but the new King James does, and the ah, NASB okay. does. I mean, there are there are some versions that capitalize them, and yes, if you are using a version as your primary version that capitalizes or doesn't capitalize, please follow them. It is so. I have plenty of clients that don't want to do that, but it's so confusing for readers to to not use the capitalization format that your primary version is using. So so yes, the the probably the most popular ones uh I think the Holman Christian verse uh Holman Christian Bible I forget the letters there HCS Holman Christian Standard Bible. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um that and the New King James and the NAS they all use those deity pronouns. But the actually the market, many markets move away from that because it gets confusing. And actually, um, Robert Hudson in the Christian Writers Manual of Style explains that very well, why you need to think seriously um, about doing that. Are there style guides for the different translations? So if I'm writing a, a book and I'm using the New King James as my primary translation where I can kind of know on a sheet of paper, here's all of the kind of idiosyncratic things that New King James does that I can kind of be in line with with my book? Well, you wouldn't be able to follow the King James absolutely because it uses almost no punctuation, which becomes very well, new, new difficult. King James. New, new King, King James. James. New King James is much easier to use, but... New King James is much easier. Yeah. I actually have a copy of the original <laughs> King James and it's almost completely unreadable because a lot of the letters are different and the um, spellings of words hadn't been standardized yet. And F's were used in a lot of places and P's yes. that are not normally done. And it's, um, it's really, really difficult to read. So even when you're looking at a King James, it's not the original. The fact I have a facsimile of the original and it's, it's different. It's a, it's a really, it's almost a different language. I would. I don't know if there is a specific guideline that again Robert Hudson in Christian Writer My, Writer's Manual of Style gives you a lot of information about what capitalization to use, what capitalization capitalization not to use. Uh, he came out with a fourth edition a few years ago, so if some of your writers are sticking with the third edition, they need to get the fourth edition, and a fifth edition is actually coming out in a few years. But I would just. I would advise writers to choose a version. Some, especially nonfiction writers, think that using 15 different versions of the Bible in their book is a good idea. That is not a good idea. 
especially if you are writing to newer Christians or seekers. Pick a version and do your best to stick with it and follow what that version uses. It's also potentially you're trying to get something out of this text that's not there, which is why you're having to cherry pick so many translations. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it forces there, you to submit to the text a little bit more if you pick uh, a translation or two, uh, I will say. Yes, yes. No, you're absolutely right. Because when you're cherry picking, oh, I like the nuance of this one, and, and maybe that's not even an accurate one. Yeah. Um, one one final tip here on uh, Christian um, Bible translations. If you're going to pick one as your primary, I would encourage you to read the translator's notes uh, at the beginning of the Bible. Everyone always skips past the translator notes, but often they'll explain some of the uh, rules, right? What they capitalize, what they don't capitalize. Sometimes they talk about that in the translator notes and why. And the other thing is it helps you understand your Bible translation and how they approach the scriptures uh, because they're very transparent. They're like, we approach translating in this way for this reason. And uh, it's not very long. It's typically two or three pages, and it will help you understand your Bible so much more if you read those first few uh, non-inspired pages by the translators. Excellent advice. We're almost out of time, but before we go, uh, tell us about your editing agency uh, and what services you offer for authors. Okay, I will. Uh, Christian Editor Network has four divisions, and the one that is most applicable or relevant to your listeners is called the Christian Editor Connection. So what you do is you go to christianeditornetwork.com. And then you click on Christian Editor Connection, and that is a free matchmaking service uh, to connect authors, publishers, and agents with qualified professional editorial freelancers who meet their specific needs. And, and again, the keyword there is free. Uh, and and several the the goal of the Christian Editor Connection is to just put editors and authors together. And another thing you want to do if you go to christianeditornetwork.com is to look at their very detailed explanation of um, types of editing. So that is actually christianeditor.com slash authors slash types of editing. And that will give you a detailed list of this is what is covered in developmental. This is what's covered in ghostwriting. This is what's covered in a copy edit. This is what's covered in proofreading. Very helpful for your listeners and absolutely free. And you also have a vetting process, right? So not anybody can be a, a Christian editor featured here, right? People have to go through tests. No, they take a test. Yes, if you are part of Christian Editor Connection, you take a test on various types of editing. And it can be nonfiction, it can be fiction, it can be proofreading, it can be copy editing, it can be content editing. And uh, I will say I send people to Christian Editor quite a bit to find an editor. It's a great matchmaking service. And what I recommend is to get at least three editors to edit a sample of your work because there's really no way to know if somebody's a good fit or not unless you're comparing them to somebody else. <laughs> Don't compare them to a ghost or some ideal. Uh, and I, what I do is I pay them all for their sample work. I know some editors will give you a free uh, sample edit, but I believe the editor should be paid i also believe that writers and authors should be paid and i believe that podcasters should be paid <laughs> speaking of which our sponsor today is the christian writers market guide it's the ultimate 
guide for helping connect you with agents, publishers, uh, cover designers, and so much more. If you need uh, to make, if you feel alone in the writing journey, or if you need help finding that right person with the skill set to help uh, get you unstuck, check it out at Christian Writers Market Guide. Real quick, and Denise, real quick before we go, do you have any final tips or encouragement? I would just say you should join a local writers group. I know a few months ago you had Eva Marie Everson on talking about Word Weavers International. Join a critique group and also go to a local writers conference because those are two of the best ways to improve your writing and learn self-editing techniques. Perfect. Uh, I love that. And I can't believe we forgot to mention writers groups this whole time. I know. Uh, but that is a really good thing. And I know people who listen to this episode and then signed up for Word Weavers. Or, you know what? You can start your own writers group in person. I know people are afraid to meet in person, but there's something really special about meeting other human beings face to face. And with that, we will let you go. Denise Locke, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you, Thomas, for having me. Thank you for listening to The Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.